good to see you today. Uh, today we're beginning, we're actually on the second week of our series of prayer and fasting as we're talking about unity. Last week we talked about Psalm 133 as we talked about the unity of the church and how it's a blessing of God. And through this whole 21 days of prayer and fasting, we're praying that God would unite us together as the, the family of God that we are. Okay, so I, I hope that you've been praying to that end as you've been praying and fasting. And today, we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. You know, as Joy was talking a moment ago, um, so much of life is defined by moments. Life, as we reflect on what's happened in the past, we think about events and moments. And that's kind of how we organize our life. We think about uh, marriages or engagements, weddings. We think about promotions, moves, where we've moved from one state to another or from one place to another. Some of these are, are good things, and some of them are, are not so great. We also define our lives by losses and hard things, funerals. Uh, some of you who may be a little bit more cynical may say something like, you know, my life has been defined by a series of unfortunate events. That may be you've walked through seasons like that. But one of the most defining moments of our lives is a, a moment that probably none of us remember. In fact, none of you do. It's the moment you were born. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Babies spend months, nine months, growing in the womb full of life. They receive nourishment, and they grow in all kinds of ways. You have all these appointments. You go back and forth all the time. But something changes the moment that baby is born. When she's born, she's born into a family. Whenever she comes into the world, she doesn't know if she's got brothers or sisters, mom or dad, or that crazy uncle that all of us have. But nevertheless, as she's born, new life is brought into the world to meet life, and then there's life together. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2 kind of mirrors that for us. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul writes to the church and says, this is what Christ has done for you. He has given you new life in himself. And he details all of the benefits of what it means to be alive in Christ, to be born again. But then in Ephesians chapter 2, or 11 through 22, our passage today, Paul tells us that this new life that we have is not an isolated life. This new life that we, that we have is actually a shared life with other people. And the event that gave us new life was not of our own doing, but it was the most monumental event in all of history, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to zero in on this idea today, that by Jesus' death, by his death, Jesus has brought us into a new life together. But many of us still kind of function like we're Christians in the womb. We're alive, but we're isolated. We're growing, but there's limits to our growth that surround us. Many of us haven't yet embraced the reality that being given new life in Christ means that that is a life together with Christ's body. And there's lots of reasons for that. You know, maybe you, once you've visited a church, you walk in and you start meeting people and imagine just how the newborn baby felt. You start walking in and you mean, these people are my family? I would have picked a different family. But we don't get to pick our natural family. And God picks his family for us. He picks our brothers and sisters 
for us. And as we begin to do life together, we start to experience these obstacles to unity together, to what life together really means. And there's at least three, but, you know, they can kind of be subsumed under all these. There's distance between each other. There's division between each other. And then there's diversion. So with distance, we a lot of times put distance between us and others. Maybe we're afraid of being known or actually developing friendships because if somebody found out about my past or found out about how my life's going, they wouldn't really want to spend time with me. So we put distance. But then there's division whenever we do do life together and we have disagreements and there's hostility that exists between us. That's another obstacle. But then diversion is whenever we get distracted by other things going on in the world and we lose sight of the central reality of what the church is supposed to be, what Christ has done for us and in us. So we get off course, moving in the wrong direction. So today what we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to ask two questions of this passage. First, what has Jesus done to bring us together? And then second, what does that mean for our new life together? Okay, so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the first thing that I want us to see about what Jesus has done to bring us together is that he's brought us close. Jesus brought us close. You see, there's a relationship here that Paul's referring to between the Jew and the Gentile. And he defines it as the circumcision and the, the, un, the uncircumcision. See, the, the non-believing Jews would have looked at the Gentiles and would have called them this name. That's who they are. They are the uncircumcised. It's somewhat of a derogatory name. And it doesn't really land uh, for us until we realize that we kind of do the, the same thing, just not as ugly. It's just, oh, there she comes. There they are. That's, that's them over there, right? We create distance with words like this. There's hostility there. That's an insult and a disdain that separates two groups of people. And they were separated by the Jewish law. The, G the Gentiles were unclean, and the Israelites were supposed to remain pure. But I want you to notice something. That's, it kind of goes under the radar until you think about this in context. They separated themselves by the command of circumcision. But notice what Paul says in verse 11. He says, this circumcision is something made by the human hand. It's made by hands. In every instance in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, that phrase to be handmade or made with human hands refers to works of idolatry or a human attempts at salvation, something made with human hands. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to say is that this, this circumcision, the thing that the, the Jews were using to divide Jew and Gentile, was something that was made by human hands. It was, they're, they're putting their, their trust and they're hoping in something that was idolatrous, made by human hands. 
And what, what Christ is going to do is break down this dividing wall. He's going to tell us about that in a minute. But this whole situation here in Ephesians chapter 2 describes the Gentile life apart from Israel. Look down there with me. He says, remember this. Remember this moment. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the the world. Distance words permeate this description of what life was like apart from from the blessing of being a part of God's people. Without Christ, without a home, without blessing, without hope, and without God himself. The word there for without God is actually where we get our word atheist from. But it doesn't mean they didn't believe in gods. It means they didn't have a relationship with the one true God. That, that was the state of the Gentiles in the world, apart from Christ. So they're far off. He says, you who were once far off have been brought in close. You've been brought in near. And that is even referring to the Jews themselves. I want you to think back with me to Exodus chapter 19 before the Ten Commandments are given, before Moses ascends the mountain to go spend time before before God. Moses had to set limits around the mountain of God's presence so that the people could not come close or else they would die. So even God's people had a certain level of limitation where they could not come into the presence of God. Think about the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go there. The people could not go in. There was a limitation. But what he says here is that all of this was changed. You've been brought near by one thing, and that's the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. In the temple, they would make sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And here, Jesus is that sacrifice. He is the one sacrifice that has made a new way for both Jew and Gentile to have direct access to God through Christ. We have been brought close to God. And everyone who does not have Christ is still far off. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, it says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. My friends, that was our state. You may have grown up in a Christian home, and you may have been in a church, but as my grandfather used to say, just because you're standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you change your location to this room on a Sunday morning does not mean you are a believer in Christ. Does not mean you share in this salvation. You can be physically near and spiritually far away. So what does this mean for our life together? That Jesus has brought us close by his sacrifice. It means first that we must remember that it is grace that has brought us together. It is grace that has brought us together. We hit on this idea last week when we talked about the vertical dimension of how the the blessing of the precious oil comes down onto Aaron's head and runs down his beard. I rather like that part. Um, And then the dew that comes from Mount Hermon comes down to nourish the ground. This is a grace gift of God. All of these things change without Christ, separated from God's people, without a home, Without God and without hope, all of that gets reversed through Christ. 
Because this is not something that we can do on our own. There had to be a substitutionary sacrifice. The blood of Christ spilled on our behalf to pay for our sins. That is all grace. All of God's doing. And through that, we can have hope and life with God through Christ. Before Jesus, we were missing what mattered most, a relationship with God. And that should produce a great gratefulness in us when we reflect back and remember where we were when Christ came to bring us close. But then also, it means we should be welcoming to those who are far from God. We were without God, in fact, wanting, wanted nothing to do with him. And Romans says we were hostile to God when we were apart from him, when we were far off. But as Joy said a minute ago, he pursued us. He came after us through Christ. So my friends, that is, should be our posture toward those who are far from God. We know so much, and we, we truly forget so much of what life was like apart from Christ. But we should be pursuing those who are far from God and telling them of the great grace that brings them into relationship with God so that they can be saved and have a new family in the family of God. There's a couple of things that get in the way, though. Pride being one of those. Pride tends to keep its distance because it sees itself as better than something else. It usually highlights the differences between, between us, much like the Jews did with the Gentiles. Oh, they are those people. They are the uncircumcision, the, the impure, and we are the people of God. We are the people of God by virtue of Jesus' work alone and not of anything we have done. And the moment we begin to trust in things we have done with our human hands, we are drifting into a self-centered idolatry. But Christ himself has made a way for us to welcome people in through his sacrifice. So first, he brought us close. What else did he do? Number two, he brought us peace. He brought us peace. Look with me in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." This section of the text is kind of the centerpiece, and it's permeated by peace. It says it four times. Peace shows up four times. But notice the first section here. He himself is our peace. The world tries to give a lot of different solutions for how to create peace between parties that are divided or hostile to one another. There is no lasting solution to peace apart from Jesus Christ because he himself is the true peace that makes peace between us and God and us and one another. There is no other solution. We can spin our wheels, trying all different things about ways we can fix this. We can fix division. But you can't fix it apart from the one who is 
peace and offers peace. Jesus himself is our peace. And what Paul then does is to explain how that is so. So we'll ask a few questions to get us through this this text. First, he answers the question, okay, if Jesus is our peace, what did he do? He made us one. Through his death, he died to fulfill all the righteous requirement of the law, to fulfill it. So he could set it aside, making a way for both parties to enter in to the presence of God. He made us one. How did he do it? Well, in verse 15, he says he destroyed the dividing wall. If you look down there, he says uh, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Now, this dividing wall could just be simply the, the figure, a figurative way of talking about the division between Jew and Gentile, being the law and uh, the ordinances therein. But also, in the temple, there was a physical place beyond which the Gentiles could not go. There, were an outer, there was an outer area in the temple, and the Gentiles couldn't transgress that boundary to come in to be a part of the people of God. But through Christ, he has also destroyed that barrier so that all may enter in. But notice, too, the the warlike words here. He abolished, he destroyed, and he killed the hostility. The cross was a conquest mission to bring us together. He wasn't just coming after me individually. He was coming after us together to bring us together and to make us one. But then why did he do it? In verses 15 and 16, he says, that he, create, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In this, these few verses, we have some echoes of Eden here. Christ is presented to us as the new Adam. He is the new Adam, the one, the last Adam, the one who fulfilled and succeeded where the first Adam failed. And all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, fall underneath the curse of the first Adam, that we are under sin. And it's only through Christ as the last Adam who succeeded and fulfilled all righteousness that we can be be saved. So whenever he says he might create one new man, it's almost like he's doing away with the other two. There's, and this is what Paul says actually in another place uh, in Galatians 3.28. He says, in Christ, there's, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. The labels by which we divide ourselves fall away under Christ who unifies all together. Now this one new man is interesting because it's only through him that we have access. I can't get to God apart from this one new man. I can't have access to God apart from this one who fulfilled all righteousness. I want you to imagine you're in a desert and there's one place to get water. Or better yet, you might want to imagine yourself in a grocery store during COVID where there's water and everybody's trying to get water or toilet paper for that matter. Everybody's going to the source. Everybody knows where to get it, and they're running to the source. Because it's only there that you can receive what you need. In the same way, the two have to go to the one, whether Jew or Gentile, 
or whatever else, however else you want to divide yourself, must go to the one source of salvation. And in him we are brought together by our common need and our common Savior. Oh, an early Christian preacher, Chrysostom, said it this way. It's not that the Gentile is to become a Jew, but that both one and the other are entered into an, an entirely new condition. This one new, it is entirely new. We become a new body in Christ. Now, what are the results of this work? Look in verse 17. Actually, I'm sorry, in verse 18. For, the, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to God together in Christ. That doesn't just mean that we can give us the freedom to pray individually to God through Christ, which is what it does do, but it also means that we can pray to God together, sharing the same heart in one spirit, unified together. So what does this mean for our life together, that, that Jesus brought us peace? First, we should be, as the church, an inhospitable environment for hostility. We as the church should be an inhospitable environment to hostility. There's a, uh, there's a place in Ethiopia where they call them these geothermal pools. And they are so hot and so salty and so acidic that no life can survive there for very long. Scientists have looked for all kinds of things. Not even microorganisms live there. In the winter, they're 113 degrees. Okay, these are some, some not a fun place to be. But you put life there and it's going to die. In the same way, the church should be an inhospitable environment to hostility. That when hostility or division arises, it can't last for very long. Because we are pursuing the humility of Jesus. Because we're pursuing the unity that we have in Christ through his death. Remembering that none of us are worthy to be here anyways. We should be an inhospitable environment. We should pursue peace not letting hostility linger. It shouldn't last long in the family of God. Next, we should also remember that there are no second-class Christians. There are no second-class Christians. He says we have access, we both have access to God. There's no, I have no greater access to God than you have. Our pastors have no greater access to God than you have. People who grew up in a Christian home have no greater access than those who didn't grow up in a Christian home. Those that believe in Jesus for salvation all have equal access to God. So my question is, are we using it? Our hope through this prayer and fasting is that we would take full advantage of our access to God through Christ and pray for God to work among us, to pray for God to encourage and to unify and to convict us, to follow Christ. There are no second-class Christians. We all pursue Jesus together. So first, what did, he, what did Jesus do to bring us together? He brought us close. 
And then he brought us peace together. And then lastly, Jesus brought us home. He brought us home. Let's look in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It doesn't matter how we define ourselves, Christ's death and life redefine us. We get new titles here. He says we are citizens, fellow citizens together and members of the household of God. In Christ we have a new country and a new family with Christ as its head. This, this was the, the point the whole, the whole time. Because what Jesus was doing with his disciples, he was creating a new group. If you want a great book to read, Joseph Hellerman's When the Church Was a Family. He argues that basically what Jesus was doing was creating a new family in himself with the disciples. And this family would transcend all other loyalties, which is why Jesus said things like, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, our primary loyalty is to him and to this new family that he has created. That's where our loyalties lie. So if whatever other loyalties we have in life, if it ever push comes to shove and we have to choose one or the other, we have to follow Christ. He is our new head of house. He's the one who calls the shots. But he says this new house, he describes it as a temple as well. How is it constructed? There's lots of building language here. How is this thing put together? He says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What does he mean by that? It's word-based preaching and teaching of Christ and his word. And Christ being the cornerstone here. Um, whenever he says Christ being the cornerstone of the foundation, how they would construct, they would start with the cornerstone so that all of the walls were, were straight. And this foundation of the apostles' uh, teaching is what created the firm foundation for the rest of the house to be built. Maybe uh, last week, whenever there was all that rain and water, Maybe some of you had some water in your basement. Might have happened to a few of us. But you have to pay attention to the foundation of your house. It's everything else rests on that. It's the area around the foundation where problems can tend to creep in. Right? If things aren't shored up on the sides, you may have a leak. If the ground starts to give way, you might begin to have a crack in your foundation. But as long as you pay attention to your foundation and keeping it sure, things should be okay. How attentive are we to the apostles' teaching and to the words? Because it's whenever our attention drifts away from the scriptures, we forget to watch out for the surrounding circumstances of our life and what's going on in the culture where things can start to creep in and cause problems. We start to look to other sources of so-called wisdom, so, other sources of teaching, rather than the word, and that creates problems in the foundation. 
But as long as we are focused on this foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, this foundation will be sure. He, Christ is the critical piece of this. And to speak of even reading the Bible, you can't understand all of the scriptures apart from Jesus himself. He holds all of it together. So we must be focused on this foundation. We're built on the, on the word. And the moment we try to make anything other than Jesus the centerpiece of our ministry or our life, that foundation will start to shift and the structure will become unstable. He, he uses this phrase, join together. It means to be framed or fit together. My mind goes straight to construction. Um, I, I like to do woodworking. I'm not very good at it. I have a couple of recent injuries that I could show you, just show you I'm not a professional, but, uh, but I enjoy it. And there's lots of different ways to join two pieces of wood together. There's weak joints and there's strong joints. Some weak joints are just where you put one piece of wood up against another one, so there's one surface here and one surface here. Not a very strong joint. That's usually why there's a bunch of nails hammered into it. But one of the strongest joints is called the mortise and tenon joint. And that's probably how the back of this piano is put together, with the vertical pieces and the horizontal pieces. You take one piece of wood and you carve out a hole through the center. And you take the other piece and you chisel away around the edge of one end of it so that it fits together flush and firm. And the goal is, whenever you're joining two pieces of wood together, to make it as if it's not even two pieces, that they're, that they're so joined together that they're, they function as one. Now, how does that relate to our life as the body? One of the reasons why the weak joints are weak is because there's only one surface and one surface. But why the strong joint is strong is because there's multiple surfaces up against another piece where there's multiple surfaces. Y'all, our life together is meant to be lived together where our life is shared, where multiple facets of our life is shared with other believers. We're joined together, where they know our hopes, they know our dreams, they know our struggles, they know our failures. Where our life meets life, not just we're in the same place on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half. This happens in life group. This is where life meets life. This is where we hear about what's going on in other people's lives and how we can pray for them, how we can minister to them, how we can encourage them. And how we can have friends in the gospel. So if you, if you haven't joined a life group, you're missing out on one of the greatest blessings that there is in the body. is to be joined together with other believers. So what does this, what does this mean that Jesus has, has, <clears throat> has brought us together and given us a new home? First, we share in the same rights and responsibilities as God's people. We share in the same rights and responsibilities as God's people. Our primary identity that we define ourselves with is that of belonging to God through Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. Whenever you think about yourself, you shouldn't define yourself by your occupation, by the way you look, whatever else. You are a son or daughter of God first. And that unifies us because that means we're family with God the Father and Christ the Son. John 1.18, John writes, for those who believed on Christ, he gave the right to become sons of God. 
It means there's privileges and benefits that come with being a part of the people of God. We were separated from those formerly in our sin, but through Christ, we now share in those. The whole New Testament details all of these. You can go back and read some of them in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. 1 Peter 1 talks about all these blessings that we have in Christ. But we have access to them through Christ together. But secondly, it also means that we share in the goal of making Jesus known to the world. Now, you might look at this text and say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't necessarily see evangelism or mission here. I don't necessarily see Paul telling anybody to go. Well, that's because we, we don't really have a really robust understanding of what temples were supposed to be. He says you are being built together and joined together as a holy temple. In, in Ephesus, there was a huge temple to their god, Artemis. And the whole point was to show the glory of Artemis to the world. But that's what ancient temples were designed to do. And if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and you read, you'll discover that Eden was meant to be a temple sanctuary of the presence of God. And when God sent Adam and Eve out, be fruitful and multiply and subdue, exercise dominion, they were to take that and spread it, take the presence of God with them and spread it all over the world. Spread the knowledge and the holiness and the glory of God. That was the intent there. And in Christ, that intent has been recommissioned. But it's no longer a church building that is the goal, or a physical temple. We, as the church, are the building of God. We, as the church, are the temple of God that shines forth the knowledge and glory and wisdom and beauty of God in the world through Christ Jesus. That's our role. We're being built together and joined together so that others would see this glorious temple that God is building. And notice I said he's building. It says you are being built and it is growing that assumes that people are seeing the glory and the beauty of Christ in his people who are his temple. And they are drawn to it because of what God has done in them. We are witnesses to his glory as his people in his temple. And we are meant to spread the knowledge of Christ to the ends of the earth. And in a moment, we're going to have a wonderful time of commissioning one of our own members who is going to be exercising that very right and responsibility of sharing Jesus with the world. But how did he get to this point, this member that we're going to commission? Through the local church. He arrived, invested time with his life group. He was discipled by some men as a part of that local church. He invested time in praying and studying the word. God worked through his people to then send out and spread the knowledge of himself to the ends of the world. We're going to do that in just a moment. But as we wrap up, I want to remind you that the most defining event in your life is not something that actually happened in your life. It was something that happened in the life of Christ when he died and rose again. Because Jesus not only saves us, but he brings us into life together with one another. Live that way. Live like what Jesus did is actually true, because it is. 
Spend time with each other. Pray for one another. Especially during this season of prayer and fasting, pray for a deeper unity around Christ. Because a unity built around anything else isn't going to last. And as we close, I want to read to you Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, as an encouragement. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, it is, as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near.